This morning we'll be looking at the first chapter of 2 Kings. If you want to turn there, uh, we will be making reference uh, to it a number of times this uh, sermon. Just a, a note about 2 Kings. It is not a new book after 1 Kings. It is just a continuation of that same a book, that same story that began with Solomon and continues on till the uh, exile of the southern kingdom. Here we are about halfway through this uh, story. We're seeing the unraveling of the northern kingdom as in a few generations this, king, this kingdom will be exiled for its apostasy. Here is one of the last actions of that great prophet, Elijah. He stands for God and His truth in the midst of a people, particularly a leader of a people, who sees no use of God. I'm so used to reading this before I preach that I'm about to do that, but you've already heard it, so I'm not going to do that again uh, for the sake of everyone. Uh, I'm glad I also didn't have to pronounce the names that were uh, in this passage. But this passage, this, this passage begins with a question, really, that's prompted in my mind as I thought about it, uh, which comes from Douglas Adams' book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, or, or radio series, or television show, depending on how you know that. See, there are a group of supremely intelligent beings in that uh, series. They seek to answer the question... The ultimate question, life, the universe, and everything. So in order to answer that question, they build a computer, aptly named Deep Thought. Supercomputer that takes seven and a half million years to answer the question of life, the universe, and everything. At the end of this time, Deep Thought comes up with an answer. These supremely intelligent beings go before deep thought, and the answer that they get is 42. 42. Now, at this point, the beings are highly disappointed with the supercomputer that they had designed. After all this time, how can the answer be 42? Well, Deep Thought responds this way. He says, you have to know what the question actually is in order to know what the answer means. You have to know what the question actually is in order to know what the answer means. How often is it in our lives that things go off the rails because we really don't know what we're seeking after? The reality is that when we don't know what we're looking for, but we don't know what the question actually is, we end up either seeking after the wrong thing or seeking after the right thing in the wrong way. Text this morning. Here we encounter examples of seeking after God. There are a number of different ways in which seeking after God is presented to us here in 2 Kings chapter 1. Some of them don't end up so well. But the heart of this passage is teaching us that when you seek after God and His mercy, that is precisely what you will find. Before we get to that tremendous hope, we need to go through those other ways of seeking after God. 
So with that in mind, we need to look first at the life of Ahaziah, that second, that, that king who succeeds, Ahab, who could be described as all bad all the time. Here's his son taking over the kingdom. We get a picture into what's going on in the kingdom of Israel. Let's start at the beginning, verse 1. The first thing we get as we're introduced to the new king of Israel is rebellion. The first thing we see is that Moab, who had been ruled by Ahab, the king prior to Ahaziah, has decided that this transition in leadership is a perfect time to see if they can establish their own authority again. Now, this in and of itself is not all that surprising. During transition, leadership transition times, the, 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 the kingdom would be vulnerable. We can understand what that's like. If you've ever gone through, a, 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 at a different church, a pastoral transition, it can be messy sometimes. It can be difficult as there seems to be a power vacuum. So what we really see is how the leader handles the transition and how he responds to these kinds of tests to his authority. So what is it that we learn about Ahaziah? Moab rebels after Ahab dies, and what is Ahaziah doing? He's playing by a window. Look at verse 2. He's playing by a window, and he falls out of a window. What is he doing? Other than responding to this threat to his sovereignty, his authority. Certainly he is not seeking to do the duty that God has called him to. He would be defending his rule over Moab, seeking to expand or or at least keep that uh, military expansion that uh, Israel was really called to do. So here we see the beginnings of seeking after God or seeking to avoid God. As we look at this, the whole chapter really all in one, what Ahaziah characterizes is seeking to avoid God. We see that in this dereliction of duty in the first few verses. We see it also in how he seeks worldly counsel. So whatever the reasons why Ahaziah happens to fall out of a window and Uh, Just a little bit of background here. The windows would not have had glass over them. They would have been a lattice to to, uh, screen the sun and also have a bit of an enclosure. But easy to fall out of if you're you're not uh, paying attention. So he falls down. He's in in a bad way. Of course, he's the king of Israel. And so he sends his messengers to inquire of Yahweh, right? No. He seeks worldly counsel. He sends his messengers 60 miles away to Beelzebub, god of Ekron, a Philistine idol, in order to determine whether he will recover from this fall or not. Ahaziah seeks worldly counsel. Not only does he avoid the duty that God has called to him, But then he avoids God altogether when he is in need. Now we'll we'll circle back to how Elijah gets involved here. But but when Elijah gets involved and the words that 
Ahaziah here are not what he wants to hear, there's a third way in which we see Ahaziah try to avoid God. He tries to silence God's messenger. He tries to silence God's messenger. What is his response to these not-so-favorable words to him about his future health? He sends a captain and 50 military men to go get Elijah. That is not diplomacy. That is military aggression. Seeking to silence the prophet, the mouthpiece of God, so that he doesn't have to hear the bad words that God wants him to hear. Ahaziah is a picture through repeated attempts to silence God's word. Three times he sends captains and their 50 men to bring Elijah to him that he might have a talk with him. Finish this off once and for all. Ahaziah seeks to avoid God through these ways, but what we see is that when you seek to avoid God you will inevitably encounter Him. When you seek to avoid God, you will inevitably encounter Him. We look at how Elijah intercepts these messengers. Back in verses 5 through 8, you see, or 3 and 4 rather, you see how, how Ahaziah has sent his messengers 60 miles away on a journey to a Philistine idol. And the word of the Lord says to Elijah, go and intercept them and give them this word that he will not recover. And when they come back, Ahaziah is so surprised. How did you get back so quickly? And he finds out later, by both the word that he's given and and the, the garments that Elijah was wearing, that he has indeed given him the word. He seeks to avoid, he seeks worldly counsel, he seeks to avoid God through worldly counsel, and yet he inevitably encounters godly counsel Anyway, and then when he tries to silence God's mouthpiece, it gets even worse. Inevitably, Elijah makes his way to the king to deliver that exact same message that he had given to the messengers. You see, the repetition of these words, both on the messenger's lips, from the angel of the Lord... And then through Elijah to Ahaziah is to highlight to us that nothing that we do to to escape God is going to change God's word to us. Ahaziah seeks to avoid God, but God inevitably encounters him. He gives him the word that he is destined to hear. This reminded me as I thought about this point of one of M.C. Escher's drawings. It's called Ascending and Descending. Imagine in your mind a drawing of a castle. And along the top, around the courtyard of the castle, is a walkway with a series of steps, always going up. But they join together on the four sides. And so it's an infinite stairway. Go up all you want, you'll always end up in the same place. Go down and you'll always end up where you started. Inevitably... In this illusion, you find yourself in the same place. This is the idea that we see. Try to avoid God. See where it takes you. You'll end up in the same place. God will inevitably cause an encounter to happen. 
So it is with seeking to avoid God, no matter how vigorously, in what ways we seek to avoid God, inevitably we will encounter Him. And this is the principle you can run, but you can't hide. This is what Jonah learned when he tried to flee what God's call was on his life to preach repentance to Nineveh. Inevitably, he encountered God. On the positive side, this is what David tells us in Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. There's no escape. Which is either a very comforting thing or a terrifying thing, depending on how you are seeking God. Brothers and sisters, as we consider how we seek after God, we need to be forewarned by Ahaziah's attempt to avoid God. Inevitably, that encounter will happen. Now, most of us are not actively seeking to avoid God, but there might be some functional ways in which we fall into that temptation. Let's consider a few ways in which we might be functionally acting like Ahaziah. When you fail to pursue God's call on your life, you're seeking to avoid God. For those whom God loves, He will relentlessly frustrate their efforts to get away from Him. It's what Jonah learned. If your life seems difficult, roadblocks put up all over the place, consider first whether you are running away from God's call on your life before you chalk it up to fallen world. Think about it in other ways. When we seek worldly counsel rather than God's counsel through His Word, we are attempting to avoid God. Here's some diagnostic questions for you. Where do you go first to wrestle with the difficulties of life? Is your first stop for parenting advice, social media, or God's Word? Are you more comfortable finding hope in the words of politicians than you are in the Word of God? It's possible for us to seek worldly counsel, seek to avoid God functionally, In these ways, we can even seek to silence God's word. We might be sophisticated enough to say that we don't do it, but is your Bible a better bookend or backstop or paperweight than it is the sword of the Spirit? Do you shut down? Do you fall asleep when the preacher gets up to bring God's word to you? Yes, I'm acutely aware of what mediocre preaching sounds like because I have to listen to it every week. That's not an excuse to shut down, though. Word of God, when it's preached from preacher's mouth, is still the Word of God, even if it's in humble packaging. If you shut down, decide this is a great time to catch a nap, you're attempting to silence the Word of God. So Ahaziah, his, his way in which he avoids God is a warning to us to not avoid God. Inevitably, you will encounter Him. So then, if we are not to avoid Him, we must seek Him. 
And when we are seeking God, which is a good start, we need to remember that God is creator, and we are creature. And make sure we seek Him in the right way. When we engage with God, we need to remember fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The second point we see in this passage is seeking to control God leads to an awesome display of His power. Seeking to control God leads to an awesome display of His power. We'll look now at verses 9 through 12 where we'll see the, the first two attempts by these captains in their 50 to silence God's mouthpiece. So Ahaziah, he's been confronted by the word of God, and so he seeks to silence God's word by snuffing out Elijah. Here the narrative, narrate, the narrative changes the scene from Elijah's bed, or Ahaziah's bed, now to a mountaintop experience with Elijah. Ahaziah, he does not seek diplomacy. He sends out a military unit, a strong-arm tactic, an attempt to control God by controlling his mouthpiece. We see this control lived out in the very fact that it is a commander of 50 and his 50 men, but we also see it in the way in which they talk to Elijah. Look at the first captain. Look how he engages with Elijah, verse 9. He says, O man of God, the king says, come down. He's saying that with 50 guys with swords behind him. Menacing, threatening, invitation to Elijah to come down. We'll talk about what happens to him in a minute here, but focus here on the authoritative language that's being used here. The second guy actually gets a little bit more punchy. He uses, it's a little bit obscured in our English translations, but he uses what's the prophetic formula of thus says the Lord, but he switches out king for Lord, thus says the king, come down quickly. He's bossing the prophet of God around, seeking to control the prophet through his words, backed by this military power. But what we see in these verses is that when you seek to, to control God, it inevitably leads to an awesome display of His power. God's response to these militant, authoritative words is to send fire down from heaven. To consume 102 men. Cheery thought, isn't it? It's a strong display of God's power and authority against the attempt to control him. I love the scene in Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. Harrison Ford's character is confronted by a skilled swordsman. Maybe you know what the scene I'm talking about. As the swordsman deftly swings his sword around ready for an epic battle... Indiana Jones pulls out his pistol, shoots him, and walks away, and there the scene ends. Talk about anticlimax, right? You may be thinking, as you get to this point in the passage, how is it fair that Elijah brought a gun to a sword fight like this? These guys, these guys had no chance 
against the prophet. The reality is, is that God will not be threatened by vain words and displays of power. God may be slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, but he's not a pushover. He will not be controlled by the words of these military men. He will not be controlled by Ahaziah as he seeks to snuff out God's word in Israel. The stakes, you see, are too high. So seeking to control God here leads to an awesome display of his power. Just two points of application from this idea. The first place, we're going to recognize that, that we are created and that God is creator. Seeking after God really is no better than seeking to avoid him when what we try to do is control him. Our attitude when we come to God cannot be one of entitlement. Desire cannot be to control God with our words and extract from Him what we desire apart from how He he relates to us. The text is clear here. If you try to do that, you will be broken in your attempt to do it. One other point that we see here is that we cannot be more compassionate than God. This text, admittedly, is shocking. It is surprising at how quickly these men are judged as messengers. Though it's shocking, it should not be offensive. Though God says that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, he also says that he will by no means clear the guilty. You see, there's a time for God's patience toward wayward sinners. This is a Truth that we need to cling to tightly. But we know that there will be a day when that patience runs out. What we have here in this passage is a foretaste of the day of judgment. When God will come, separate the sheep from the goats. He will once and for all, through an awesome display of power, Bring justice and vindicate his name. The world needs to hear this. Jesus preaches the Jubilee Day, a favor of the Lord's favor, and that is the time that we are in, but it is not an infinite time. There will come a day when judgment will come, and if that is not heard by the world, if we are more compassionate than God is, then we will not be giving full counsel of God, it's due worth. Grace can only be understood clearly in the light of justice. Lots of wrong ways to preach that. And to be careful how we teach people about the full counsel of God. But it must always include God's justice with His grace. As we think about this passage, this this passage is a foretaste of God's judgment. We might ask ourselves, is there any hope for anybody when these men are cut down so quickly in this summary judgment against them? Praise God, there is hope in this passage. This whole passage leads to the center, the heart of it. Verses 13 and 15. Here we see the final point of this sermon, the main point of this passage. 
Seeking the mercy of God leads to His mercy. Seeking the mercy of God leads to His mercy. It seems like at this point in the text, Ahaziah is operating under the proverb, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. And then he puts a third captain and his 50 out there. And then you're wondering what exactly is going on here. Does he not know that insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result? Is there any sane commander of 50 out there who would look at what's going on and know that nobody's coming back But they could keep getting sent out there. Something's wrong here. Then we meet this third captain and his 50 men. And we see things change. This third captain, he seeks not to control God, but he seeks to find mercy from God. In particular, there are three ways in which we see this third captain and his 50 men approach God that is different from his former co-workers. Let me just give you an overview of these things. First of all, if we look at verse 13, we see that he approaches with the proper posture. The proper posture. As the two men that came before him and their, their units went up the hill, so does he. But instead of standing before Elijah in a position of authority, he falls down. On his knees before Elijah. This man does not become, come before God's prophet with this same sense of entitlement or authority. He kneels in supplication. It reflects a posture of humility and surrender. Quite opposite from his co-workers. As we continue reading, we see that he not only approaches with the proper posture, but he also approaches with a proper plea. We see he begins the same way, O man of God, and then he makes a rapid departure from what his former men, former friends had done. Literally, he says, let my life be precious in your sight. Let it be something that you treasure Let it not be cast off that you find a place for me in mercy and grace. He pleads for mercy before God's prophet. He kneels in a posture of, in the proper posture. He pleads for mercy. He, in verse 14, approaches with the proper perspective. He has taken the object lesson of the last two captains to heart. We might actually wonder how is it that he knows what happened. He certainly knows that nobody came back when he was sent out originally. Were there just burn marks all over the hill that Elijah was sitting on? Whatever it might be, it's clear to us in this passage that this third captain has gotten the message of the other two. That seeking to control God will do nothing for him. And so when he goes, he has the proper perspective that, that, that is the foundation for his posture and his plea. He knows the fear of the Lord. You might say that, that is the beginning of wisdom for him is to surrender to Elijah. These three things, this posture, this plea, this perspective, they are the key to seeking God. 
What the writer of Kings wants us to know is that how you understand your relationship to God must be one of seeking His mercy in humility. For when you seek God's mercy, there you will find it. There's actually a, something you may not have uh, caught. One of the problems of, of English translations in trying to smooth out the passages is that they, they, they can sometimes conceal repeated words. There are a number of repeated words in this passage. Go up and come down. And so we, we, we have repeatedly uh, Elijah's words to Ahaziah actually say that surely you will not come down from the bed on which you have gone up. You will surely die. It's repeated three times. The first captain, he goes up to meet Elijah on this hill. He demands that Elijah come down, but the only thing that comes down is fire from heaven. So the same happens with the second captain. But then things change, as we've seen in verses 13 and 15. Going up happens in a different way. With the proper posture, plea, and perspective. So he comes safely down from an encounter with God. Indeed, we see in verse 15 that the angel of the Lord appears a second time and tells Elijah, you can go down with this guy. He will do you no harm. The key to coming down from an encounter with God, is, the, is a proper fear of the Lord. That is how we come safely down from an encounter with God. So come to an end of this passage in these three ways that we see seek after God. I hope you see clearly that though God is just and holy, He's also merciful. He extends a free offer. There's mercy wherever there is surrender. Repentance in our lives is the surrender of this third captain. In the face of God's holiness and severity and His judgment, this third captain comes and he seeks after mercy. He survives this encounter with God by surrendering himself wholly to the prophet of God. C.S. Lewis, he captures this sentiment well when he says, Fallen man is not simply an imperfect creature who needs improvement. He is a rebel who must lay down his arms. Laying down your arms, surrendering, saying you are sorry, realizing that you have been on the wrong track and getting ready to start life over again from the ground floor, that is the only way out of a hole. This process of surrender, this movement full speed astern is what Christians call repentance. Read in Hebrews 12 that God is a consuming fire, but we also read that at the end of where we saw that we do not come to Sinai, but we come to Zion. The next chapter after Matthew 10, our gospel reading is Matthew chapter 11, the end of which tells us this free offer that we find in Jesus Christ. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. That is what the call that Christ gives. Encounter Him, seeking mercy. 
Seek the abundant grace that comes in our Lord Jesus Christ. Constantly surrender to our great God. He has given us this great hope. And when we seek Him with proper posture, the proper plea, the proper perspective, we will find mercy with our great God. To Him be all the glory. Amen and amen. Let's go to God in prayer. And our great God, we do give you thanks that you are a God of holiness and severity, a God of mercy and grace. We thank you for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, our great high priest, by whose intercession we can find grace and help in a time of need. We do pray that you would transform our hearts, O Lord. We pray that you would conform us to your image. We pray that you would give us great um, a fear of you that would bring us to our knees each day seeking your mercy. We pray this in your great name. Amen.